0: As you're doing so, uh, if you take your Bible and turn it to Mark, chapter 14, we are going through the Gospel of Mark, and this week we come to Mark 14 and the institution of the Lord's Supper, this very important meal. When folks go to our um, Connect class, our new members class, I get a couple questions, very common questions, and one of the questions is, why do you take Communion? Every week. Why? And they will also ask uh, with that, why do you celebrate communion the way you do so? Why not just have it in a corner somewhere for private individuals to go partake if they want to and leave it if they don't? It's a good question. I think the answer to those questions have to do with the meaning of this meal. Hear God's word from Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 26. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where would you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Pray with me. And now I do ask that not only that my words would be pleasing and acceptable to you, God, but that I would preach the gospel and that they would hear from you and in hearing, believe. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, it's August 19th. There's something that is important about that date. What is it? Oh yeah, it's my anniversary. I woke up this morning and I realized it's my anniversary. And that sent me thinking back some 13 years ago or more when Pam and I had our first date. I was in seminary and I finally got up the courage to to ask out this very intelligent, beautiful woman who was often studying at the coffee shop with me and I decided I'm going to ask her out and I'm going to be really clear about what we're doing because I don't want her to think, you know, what's going on here. I don't want to be like one of those guys who is kind of not clear about his intentions Maybe some of you are sitting next to one of those right now. Uh, Are we on a date or not? You know, it's a great question. And I said, no, I'm going to be very clear. So I had a rehearsed speech. I'm going to be very clear. So I, uh, you know, I downed my coffee. That was my courage in those days. And I said, Pam, would you like to go to a concert with me? And she looked at me and I I thought, that was good. (laughs) I was bold. I was clear. I asked her to this date, will you go to a concert with me? And she hemmed and hawed a little bit and I thought, oh no. This is not good. This is not good. She's, she's, she is contemplating this, which is understandable, considering it's me. And we got to the end of the hemming and hawing and she said, I just don't know if I have the money. How much does it cost? And I thought, what have I done wrong? How was I not clear, right? I mean, we want clarity in relationships, do we not? Uh, and you've probably been in that situation where you're like, "What? are we a thing? Are we not a thing? That's why we have this, this definition or this phrase, a DTR, that we call. It's to define the relationship. And we don't just have them with relationships like between you know, boys and girls uh, who are thinking about getting married, we have them with our bosses. We have them with our siblings. We have them with people when we feel like insecure about the relationship and we don't know, are we good? That's why we have that phrase, are we good? And whenever you ask the question, are we good, it means probably not good, right? Yeah, we're good, but are we really Because I had to ask the question. We need definition. I mean, one of the worst things in the world is like being in a job where you don't know your job description and you feel like you're driving on ice or then you get let go and you don't know why. What standard was used? Definition is important in our relationships. It's also important in our relationship with God. We need definition. Definition. Because let's be honest, we also get insecure in our relationship with God. The disciples did. Right after Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray them, him, verse 19 tells us that they each began to say, one after another. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Not one of them was confident. Not one of them stood there knowing, I know that my relationship with Jesus is sure and certain and there's no way I would betray him. Is it I, Lord? And it's in this place that Jesus gives the Lord's Supper. Because I think that in the Lord's Supper, Jesus gives his disciples a DTR. The Lord's Supper defines the relationship. And it does so in three ways. First, the Lord's Supper defines the relationship by giving us a meal. Notice the context in verse 18. It says that they were reclining at the table and eating. Now, you can eat in all sorts of ways. You can eat on the go. You can eat standing. You can even fill your body with those energy gel packs to fill up with fuel. You can do that. But to gather around a table... Well, that's more than just filling up on fuel. That's to form a relationship. I mean, think about it. The most significant relational moments that you have had, most of them have happened around the table. I don't think that there's any greater picture of a relationship than a table. And, and, and it's not only at, the, at a table that we, that we have these, these significant relational moments. It's also how we celebrate significant relationships. Like my anniversary. So, on Friday night, I didn't forget my anniversary. So, on Friday night, I, we went out for an anniversary dinner, and we're sitting at a table, and we're talking, and we hadn't been out on a date in like two months, uh, which is a long time for us, and we found ourselves done with the meal, and we just sat there talking and talking and talking, and finally, it was like, oh, we better give this table up because it's, it's a really busy restaurant, but we just wanted to carry on talking through the night, Around the table. And that's what tables are about, aren't they? They're about forming relationships. And, And tables are also the places where problems in relationships are felt most acutely, aren't they? I mean, it's at the table where you sense the tension between mom and dad. Between me and parent between siblings. Henry Nowen puts it like this, the table is the place of intimacy. Around the table we discover each other. It's the place where we pray. It's the place where we ask, how was your day? It's the place where we eat and drink together and say, come on, talk some more. It's the place of old and new stories. It's the place for smiles and tears. The table too is the place where distance is most painfully felt. It's the place where children feel the tension between parents, where brothers and sisters express their anger, jealousies, and where accusations are made, where, and where plate and cups become instruments of violence. Around the table we know whether there is friendship and community or hatred and division precisely because the table is a place of intimacy for all the members of the household. It is also the place where the absence of that intimacy is most painfully revealed. To the table is for intimacy. And so lack of intimacy is felt there. That's what Nalan is saying. And the very fact that, that Jesus invites his disciples to a meal around a table, I think, says something. It says, I want an intimate relationship with you. Because think about it, enemies, sworn enemies, like real true enemies that have no desire for reconciliation with one another, they don't eat together. I mean, you know about that famous meal between Churchill and Hitler, don't you? That's right, because it never happened. It wouldn't happen. Sworn enemies don't sit down at the table together, but Jesus says, come, eat with me. I want a relationship with you. In verse 12 through 16, they make it really clear that Jesus is the host. He is in control. He is making all the preparations. And in verses 22 and 23, it's it's Jesus that takes, that blesses, that breaks, and that gives. Jesus is having a meal and he wants to eat this meal, verse 14, with his disciples. Now, some of you have been having a bad week. Some of you have been having a bad month. Some of you have been having a bad year. Because you're getting clobbered by your sin. Some of you are coming in here and your attitude this week, the cynicism and the cynical thoughts, or the disdain that you had for your spouse, or or the frustration with a child, it just kept rising and kept rising. And you went into that swirl of negative thoughts, always thinking the worst. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, you don't, but some of you do. And you think, man, is Jesus fed up with me? Is he done with me? Uh, some of you, it's, it's addictions that, and addictive patterns that you keep falling back into and you think, is Jesus tired of me? For others of you, you have questions, like real questions, questions about God and the world he ask, why God? Why? And you think, Is God tired of my questions? Is he fed up with me? Listen to me. God invites us to this meal and he invites us to this meal to say, I want intimacy with you. At this place, I want you to know me and I want to know you. At this place, I want a relationship with you. And I'm inviting you in so that you know that we are not enemies. That I want to be friends. Uh, Especially when you consider what meal this is. Uh, Over and over again, the text makes absolutely clear that this is Passover. Verses 12 through 16, Jesus tells them to go and prepare the Passover. The Passover was a meal in which Israel celebrated because Israel, like all peoples in all cultures, celebrated, they marked the great events of their history with a meal. Like we do with the Fourth of July or Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And Passover was their greatest meal because it marked the most significant event in their history when their Israelites had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt and God sent Moses to remind the people that he had not forgotten them, that he heard their cries, and that he was going to rescue them out of the hands of the oppressive slave master Pharaoh, through the Red Sea, and into the freedom of the Promised Land. And he said, I want you to eat this meal even while you're still slaves. So that you might know that despite all appearances, you might say to the world and say to yourselves, we are God's free people despite all appearances. And at this meal, God says, despite all appearances, we are God's free people. And I'm going to deliver you from everything that hinders you from a relationship with me. Moreover, Passover was a, a, a sacrificial meal which the worshipers, they sat down and they ate the meal. Now, Israel had an elaborate sacrificial system. We won't go into why that is and why that's important and how it's, uh, but I realize it's really offensive to a lot of people today. It's actually supposed to be offensive because sin's offensive. But that sacrificial system was actually to communicate that this is how your relationship with God is repaired. And there was always an order to the sacrificial system. There were the sin offerings that you would give first. The sin offerings were to show that that your sin needed to be dealt with when you came into God's presence. Then after uh, they would, the priest would, would, um, would sacrifice the sin offering. He would take the blood and he would splatter it on the altar and it was an assurance that you are now forgiven. And after that, the, um, the priest would take another offering, the olah, the whole burnt offering, and they would, they would cut the ram just so on the altar. And then they would burn it up and it would rise like incense to God. In other words, that's how Israelites got to be on fire for Jesus. Because they would actually, that's the only way in which that phrase is ever applicable or useful. Um, they were on fire for Jesus because... God would set them, the worshiper, apart after their sin had been dealt with and they would rise like incense before his presence. And they were cut up just so, sanctified for God. And then there was a final meal. The peace offering or the fellowship offering. And here's the thing about the peace offering or the fellowship offering. It was the final meal and it was the only meal where the worshiper got to sit around the table and eat at. And here's what it communicated. Once your sin has been dealt with, and once you've been sanctified by God's word and set apart for him, the only thing that's left is for you to enjoy your relationship of peace and fellowship. So sit down at the table and eat. Passover was one of those sacrificial meals that they ate at, which means that Passover was a type of peace offering. And I think that the Lord's Supper is the New Testament peace offering. That that based on the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our sins have been forgiven. And we have been set apart by his word. It has cut us up like joint and marrow. And we have been set apart and consecrated for him. And then the only thing that is for us to do is to come. To come and to feast with God. And at this table, God says, we are not enemies anymore. Your sin has been dealt with. You have been set apart. And now, here at this table, you enjoy a relationship of peace with me. That's what this table is about. It's a meal. It's a meal that tells us that we are at peace with God. You say, well, wait a second, Kyle. That Judas was there. I mean, Judas was there and verse 18 says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, the one who was eating with me. And, and in verse 21, Jesus says, the son of man goes as is written of them, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And verse 23 says that they all drank the whole 12, including Judas. So what does that mean? It means that Judas did not accept the invitation. You see, Jesus still offers the invitation to Judas for intimacy and fellowship that the meal represents, but the problem was is that Judas took the bread and he took the cup, but he didn't take the relationship. And that's what it's about. And it's because he took the bread and he took the cup and he didn't take the relationship that there was actually a greater degree of judgment for him. And for those who come and take the bread and take the cup but don't take the relationship. Because Jesus is inviting you into, through the bread and through the wine, intimacy with him. And the problem with Judas was that he rejected that invitation and he continued to reject that invitation. That's the difference between him and Peter. See, Peter came back to the table. Judas did not. But Jesus' invitation is for one and all. He wants intimacy with you. And he invites you so that you might know that you are at peace with him. Will you receive it is the question. He invites us to a meal. That's the first way that Jesus defines the relationship at this supper. The second way is by giving us a sign. Look at verses 22 and through 24. says that as they were eating, Jesus does some strange things. He takes bread and after blessing it, he breaks it and he gives it to them. And he says, take, this is my body. And in verse 23, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus says, this bread is my body. Jesus says this cup is the new covenant or the covenant in my blood. In other words, Jesus is saying that the bread and the wine, that they stand for something, that they are signs. Now they're not pictures. They're signs. And there's a difference. A a picture is like a picture of a mission. A sign is like the mission is here. Right? Right? If you're wondering where is the mission or where is State Street, what do you look for? You look for the street sign. And when you see, see the street sign, you know where it is. Jesus, is uh, Jesus gives the bread and he gives the wine and there are signs. Now the sign is not the street, but the sign says this is where the street is. And Jesus says, this is where my body and this is where my blood is. This is where I communicate myself to you. It's a sign. It's a sign of a covenant relationship. Now we have signs, right? Some uh, 13 years ago, I I stood at an altar and I made covenant vows to my wife and we exchanged rings, signs of the covenant. These are tangible expressions of our relationship. A ring, a wedding ring, says to the world, I'm married. If you want to know whether or not someone's in a covenant relationship with someone else, what's the first thing you do? You check their hand, don't you? We all do because it says to the world, I am married. But it doesn't just communicate to the world the relationship. It also communicates to the person wearing the sign, I would suggest. You know, that's why I would hazard a guess that the reason why people take off their wedding rings when they're traveling to have an affair is not just for the other person's sake. It's for their sake. Because the symbol is actually really powerful. A powerful indication of the relationship. It's such a powerful indication that, you know, there have been times in marriage, not your marriage, but my marriage, in those 13 years, where because we are both sinners coming into a relationship together, things are hard and disagreements happen. And sometimes those disagreements are so hard and so intense that you're like, are we ever going to get past that? Sometimes those disagreements are so hard and so intense that you're like, are you the person that I married? Did I really marry you? I know you've never had that thought. I have that thought. Of course, the reality is, is that it's not because most of us have some kind of fantasy picture of our spouse and then we realize who our spouse really is the one that we make covenant vows to as time goes on. But anyway, in those moments when things are really, really hard, when they're like, we can't talk tension hard, we need to work this out for the sake of our daughter hard, right? I find myself feeling my ring more. Because it's in those moments that I feel this and I think, no, we really did make vows before witnesses and before God. And God really did join us together. And the one who joined us together really will give us the power to complete this. That, that this covenant relationship is real no matter what I'm feeling right now. We will make it through. Well, the bread and the wine, it's like a wedding ring. It's a sign of a covenant. The covenant relationship that God makes with his people. And what kind of covenant is this? Well, it's the new covenant. The new covenant where God says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And what was the difference in that covenant? My covenant which they broke. See, the old covenant was a breakable covenant. Though I was their husband... (laughs) For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will, shall be my people. And no longer shall each, teach, see, when each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See what this, what this says is that I am married to Pan, till death do us part. And what this says is that God will remember your sin no more. That he has forgiven all your iniquities. What this meal says is that God has even secured your ability to carry on in the relationship by writing his law, his covenant code on your heart. To give you the ability to follow him. But why does God use these signs? And why use these things? Well, some people say it's because we're sinners. And there's this wonderful, this wonderful passage that is kind of breathtaking in the re- French reformer John Calvin on how God gives us this because of our weak and feeble sinfulness. And I think that that, that is absolutely true and applicable But I don't think that that's actually the only or primary reason why he gives us this. I think he gives us this because we're embodied human beings who are creatures. And we need to actually be, uh, to have things communicated to us through physical means. I, I mean, think about this. A baby, when they come out, they don't have to learn to hold a hand. The first pictures of a baby are of them grasping their parents' pinky. They know the need, the instinctual need for physical touch. Uh, And studies show that that physical touch is incredibly important for emotional and social development. Uh, Doctors Charles and Elizabeth Smith, who are kind of marriage uh, gurus, they say, uh, to touch someone you love is to acknowledge their presence and to communicate your desire for them. And some of you know that's what that's like, to have a spouse put their hand on your shoulder or a friend, to touch you and say, I see you, I know you, and I desire a relationship with you. At this table... God, through bread and wine, acknowledges your presence. He says, I see you. I know you. And I desire a relationship with you. And he reminds us that over and over and over again. So as you come up to the table, may you know that as real as the bread is on your mouth, so real is God's love for you. And as real as the wine is on your tongue, so real... Is his saving work on your behalf that he remembers your sins no more and he has forgiven your iniquities to the utmost? It's at the table where God gives us a meal, it's where God gives us these signs, but he also defines the relationship by, at this table by giving us himself. Uh, he gives us himself as a substitute. You know, I said that this was strange what Jesus was doing at the table, but it wouldn't have been strange to first century Jews. In fact, they would have expected the host to get up and to take the bread and to say, this bread is. But they expected him to say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our forefathers ate in the wilderness. But Jesus didn't. He said, this bread, this is my body. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is the bread of my affliction, which I am going to undergo for you. Uh, uh, Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring about the ultimate exodus. I am a greater than Moses who is growing before a greater slave master than Pharaoh, sin, to lead you through a greater sea, death, to bring you into a greater freedom, in a better world. That's what Jesus comes to do and to say at this meal. To tell you and to promise to you that, that he has given himself on your behalf and he leads you and the world through. He gives himself as our substitute. Verses 23 and 24, he says that this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Truly, until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And I always wondered about that. When is that? And why does he say that? And then I realized from Acts 23 that to say, I won't do this until this happens is a way of pledging an oath. It's like saying, I am not going to eat or I am not going to sleep until you get a job or until this happens. I I am going to secure that this happens. And I think that Jesus is saying, until this work is accomplished and fully accomplished, I will not drink this. And he goes before us and he accomplishes the work by giving himself as a substitute, not only with the bread, but also with the cup. You know, it's not too long after this that 10 verses that Jesus goes out into the garden of Gethsemane right after giving a cup, right after taking and giving a cup, and he says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's highly significant. You know, In the Old Testament, the cup had kind of a dual referent. On the one hand, the cup was a cup of blessing. The blessing of God's saving presence. You're probably familiar with Psalm 23. My cup, it overflows. The wine of gladness in the Psalms. But the cup was also depicted God's judgment. His unmitigated wrath. That's why the prophets say that when God is going to punish his people and bring his wrath, he will make you drink the dregs of the cup. Listen to me, the only way that Jesus was able to give a cup to his disciples and the only way that he's able to give a cup and it be joy and blessing to you and to me is because he took the cup. He took the cup of God's unmitigated wrath for you and for me. When? He drank it to its dregs when? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? William Cooper Brits say Cooper, the English say uh, Cowper, was a, um, or Americans say Cowper, Uh, he was a hymn writer that you probably don't know, some of you will know, but you'll probably know one of his good friends, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Well, Cooper was also a hymn writer, probably most known for There is a Fountain uh, Filled with Blood, but the hymn that describes his life is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Because Cooper spent his whole life in agony and suffering. Like deep suffering. He had lost two siblings and his mom by the age of six. In the next couple years, he was sent off to boarding school and effectively losing his dad. There at boarding school, we read that an older boy, 15 years old, uh, harassed him and bullied him for two years every day. And from what we can read of the accounts, it was more than just bullying. He went into deep depression He met a gal named Theodora, who he courted for seven years. At the end of that seven years, he was engaged, but her father would not let them marry. She went off. At that point, he fell into deep depression, and he said, I feel like a man when he arrives at the place of execution. At age 28, he had attempted suicide three times, and that wasn't the end of it from him. And that wasn't the worst of it for him either. One night he had this dream so vivid. And in that dream he heard an angel say to him, it's all over with you and you were lost. He struggled his whole life with assurance and knowing, is God really for me and does he love me? Elizabeth Baring Br- uh, Browning was a poet who wrote... This poem called On Cooper's Grave. In the middle of that poem, there's this stanza Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, this universe have shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from the Holy's lips amidst his lost creation. That of the lost, no son should use those words of desolation. What Elizabeth Baring uh, Browning was saying, was she was saying that that Jesus cried those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that ultimately William Cooper would never have to cry them again. Listen, some of you are suffering. We heard it from Jameson earlier. Others of you are suffering in different ways, some in the same way, some deeply. I don't know why you're suffering, and I don't know why God doesn't take that away, and I don't know why he doesn't deliver you from that. I do not, but here's, here's what I do know. I don't know what your suffering means, but I, don't, I do know what it doesn't mean. Your suffering does not mean that God is against you. Your suffering does not mean that God is not for you and your suffering does not mean that God does not love you. And his suffering, his suffering means that God loves you more than you could ever know. His suffering means that God could never be against you. His suffering means, it means that whatever your suffering means, you do not have to feel or cry I am abandoned because he is with you and he is for you and he he loves you because he died in your place. And he will bring you through the other side. That's what this table is about. Jesus gives himself as a substitute at this table, but Jesus also just gives himself at this table. You know, it's interesting in that first covenant meal where at the end of making a covenant, they had this meal. Marika did a wonderful job reading it for us earlier. Did you notice what happened after the blood is splattered on the people and they are are contracted in the covenant? It says that the leaders of the people, representing the people, all go up and they eat a meal after the peace offerings. They eat a meal and it says, and they did eat and behold their God. That there's something connected with the eating and the beholding. That it was there at the table where they experienced God and felt God in his presence and saw him in a way in which they hadn't seen before. That God revealed himself to them and they experienced him at the table in a way that they didn't before because he was present there. I believe that at this covenant meal, Jesus is present. (laughs) not by his flesh being transformed into bread and wine, but that through the bread and the wine, we are lifted up to heaven and we partake of Jesus and all that he is and he is here for us at this meal. You know, a lot of people are wanting an experience of God today and they're doing lots of things to try to, to gain that. Some people go on hikes, long hikes. Some people go up into the mountains. Some people go on long sails. Some people do uh, aesthetic practices where they where, where they kind of Uh, go into really strict diet or something like that. Listen to me. Do you want to experience God? Do you want to experience his presence? Then come here. This is where God reveals himself palpably and fully. This is his chosen means of doing so. Which is why I can't understand. I, I, I believe that some of you do not know this. And the reason I know that you don't know this is because you're fairly laxadaisical with church attendance. Now listen, I don't care if you come to church for like to fill up my roles or the roster or anything like that. I, I, I could care less. And I'm glad whenever you're here at all. But do you really want to miss out on this? Because it's not out there. It's right here, Sunday after Sunday. Where Jesus says, I am here. Come eat with me. Well, if you really want to experience Jesus, if you love him and if you know him and if you trust him, then get ready to come to the table. And here he will define the relationship that you are his son and his daughter, beloved. You are his free people. Amen.